Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Let me get situated here. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, eternal God, the creator of the universe. You've given us your word, and it is to be a lamp and light unto our path to guide our lives. You've revealed yourself in it, Father. We pray this morning as we look to your word that you would reveal yourself to us. Would you open our minds so that we may understand your revelation, that we may obey it that we may trust you and that by living our lives according to it, we would be pleasing to you, Father. We pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, contained in our text this morning is a famous portion of Scripture, one that's plastered on t-shirts, plastered on billboards, used in sports games and all sorts of things. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13. If ever there was a famous portion of scripture, that would be it. And so I wanted to read you a news article about this passage of scripture. Now I will, I will because I'm nice, preface it by saying this is a satire. So this is not true. But here's what it says. This is the title. Weird but true. Two Christian high schools have been stuck in a tied football game for six months after both teams invoked Philippians 4.13. It's Cameronsville, Iowa. File this one away in the weird but true folder. In a tragic prayer misfire, two Christian high schools have been stuck in a tied football game for the past six months after both teams prayed Philippians 4.13 before the game. The teams, the Highland Christian Knights and the Valley Christian Knights, are currently facing off in a record-breaking 25,920th overtime. They got stuck in the loop after neither team being able to win, after both teams' coaches huddled them up to pray, and both claimed the victory by invoking Philippians 4.13. Quote, Lord, we claim the promise that we can do all things through you, prayed Highland Christian Knight coach Bob Winsley before the championship game started in early December. Like, beat the pants off the Knights. Go Knights! Now everyone's hands in. Jesus on three. One, two, three. Jesus! Now here's the other team praying. Lord, we come before you now and we just claim your promise that we can do all things through you, prayed Valley Christian Knight coach Bob Hardiker. I love they're both named Bob. Like crush the Highland Christian Knights. Go Knights! Now everyone's hands in. Jesus on three. 
One, two, three, Jesus. Biblical scholars say that when two sports teams both claim the verse, it creates a paradoxical time vortex. Quote, it's like an unstoppable object meeting an immovable wall, said one biblical scholar. Some say they'll be playing forever. At publishing time, the Highland Christian Knights had almost won after praying Jeremiah 29.11, but the Valley Christian Knights quickly countered with Isaiah 40.31, and the stalemate continued. See, it's brilliant. We read articles like this and we laugh, but how many of us have either seen or, or been guilty of taking a passage like this out of context and claiming the victory? When it comes to reading scripture correctly, context is king. The key to making money on, on, on realty is, is location, location, location. And the key to Bible interpretation is context, context, context. This is always important, of course, but it's especially evident in a text like this this morning, which is so prone to being taken out of its context. There's actually a couple passages here in our text that are like that. Uh, I, I hate to break it to you, but Philippians 4.13 is not about your sports game. It's not about helping you climb a mountain or lose 10 pounds or learning how to juggle. Um, I know it must be shocking. I probably just stole your life verse and trampled it underground. Uh, but it turns out there is a context to Philippians 4.13. You see, before Philippians 4.13, there's Philippians 4.12. And after it, there's Philippians 4.14 and other verses. And these verses actually help us to know what that means. But we're going to look at a bigger chunk this morning. Uh, we're going to be finishing the book of Philippians. So here's, here's the context, kind of just as a reminder. Paul is writing to the Philippians from Rome while he awaits trial most likely for execution, he believes. Now, the, the occasion for the letter is that the Philippians had sent financial support to Paul in Rome, carried by a messenger named Epaphroditus. Now, you remember that this was a long journey, somewhere between three and six months, depending on how you traveled, fraught with many dangers, and Epaphroditus almost died, we know. So Paul writes this letter, the Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, uh, essentially is a, a big thank you note for Epaphroditus to take back with him as he goes back to Philippi. And so what we see at the end of this letter is essentially Paul's final thank you. And he kind of finally gets to the, the reason for his writing after he's gone through everything else. And so what we're going to see this morning at the end of his letter is essentially this, his thank you note. But it's, it's the Apostle Paul, of course, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's not just a thank you note, it's a beautiful teaching opportunity for them and for us. And I mean, also with a portion of scripture like this, there's so many different things it touches on that we're just not going to be able to cover it all in depth. But there's kind of three large topics that Paul um, hits on here. Contentment, money, kind of money slash missions funding, and grace, the grace of God. And so those are kind of going to be the three big tents we're going to find ourselves in this morning, we're going to see Paul's relationship to these and, and by relation, what our relationship to these things should be as well. So with that, let's read our passage. Turn to Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. And we're going to read through to the end. Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Christ, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And this morning, as we look at this text, we're going to go a little bit out of order. So we're going to look at 11 through 13 first, and then we'll look at verse 10 and the rest, just to kind of keep it topically arranged. So he begins in verse 10, though, by by stating that he's thankful for their gift. And then he kind of takes a, a rabbit trail on contentment because he doesn't want them to get the wrong idea. So we're going to deal with that rabbit trail first, and then we'll go back to his thanks. So in verses 11 through 13, it's it's kind of fascinating. Paul, within these three verses, reveals a secret, he calls it. He's learned the secret. He's he's learned the, the secret of contentment, the secret of facing any situation in life. We heard last week how he had been beaten Many times, shipwrecked, three times, tried, he, they tried to stone him once, and all sorts of other terrible things. Well, in this text, you know, we, we hear that, and we ask ourselves, well, how did he keep going? Well, this, he tells us in this text. After thanking them for their gift, he says, not, not that I'm speaking of being in need. In other words, I didn't need your gift. Now, he's not being rude. He's trying to, he's trying to teach them to have a correct view of money. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So how did Paul face these things? I can do all things. In other words, I can do all these things through him who strengthens me. So Paul says, thanks in verse 10, but he says, not not that I needed it, Now, again, what he's doing is he's demonstrating to them that while he appreciates their money, his contentment is not based on their ability to give. His contentment is not even found in his circumstances. Paul has learned to be content in the face of any situation, and he truly has faced pretty much the worst situations. Paul knows how to be content when he has significant needs, physically, emotionally, financially, and he has learned to be content. When he is poor, which he was at times, so poor that he told us last week he's, he's gone to bed hungry many a night. And he has learned to be content when he abounds. 
In other words, when, when his material resources are overflowing, he has learned the secret to being content then as well. He knows how to be brought low. He knows how to be humiliated, in other words, in the eyes of men. And he knows how to abound when he's highly respected. He knows how to glorify God when he is poor and humiliated. And he knows how to glorify God when he is wealthy and abounding in material resources. Because he's learned the secret. You see, Paul knows that it's, it's not just hard to be content and glorify God in, abundant, or in abundance as it is in need. In other words, sometimes we, it's easier actually to glorify God when we're in need. Because we're so exposed, we, we realize we're so dependent on him. When we think we have everything we need, when we, when we have all of our material needs met, we get forgetful of God's grace, don't we? We, we begin to forget God's provision in our life. Our praying becomes less fervent, little by little. But when we are in need, we come flying back to God often. But either way, Paul says, I've learned the secret of, of enduring through all of that. I've learned the secret of facing all these situations, of facing abundance, of facing need, of facing hunger, of facing plenty. Well, what is it? What, what, what is the secret? Paul tells us. Christ is in you and can strengthen you to do any task that he has called you to. That is the secret. That's what Paul has learned that allows him to endure all of these things. That Christ will strengthen you. You survive by Christ's strength, not your own. That is the secret. Christian, through you, Christ will strengthen you to accomplish the tasks which he has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Christ will strengthen you to endure the things he has called you to endure. You can do all these things through Christ who strengthens you. Try to like hear that afresh this morning. Because it's, again, it's one of those things that's just repeated so often. It becomes almost meaningless in our ears. You can do all these things. You can endure all these things. You can glorify God in all these situations. Not through your own abilities. Not through your own wisdom. Not through your own strength but through Christ's strength. That's the secret. That, that's the secret. In other words, God is not expecting you to rely on your own strength. God is not putting you in situations and then standing back here and saying, hope you can do it. He is with you, in you, strengthening you, saying, no, 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 lean on me. You're not to rely on your own strength. For some reason, we just think that that's what God is expecting of us sometimes. And Paul says, no, no, no. The secret is that he's not. It's all about his strength. This is the secret. God wants us to be dependent on him. He supplies the strength that we need. That's what Paul has learned and known. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 that God had put him in trials so that he would be overwhelmed, so that he would depend on God. And Paul's taken that truth and lived his entire life by it. But the secret doesn't just allow Paul to survive. It doesn't just allow him only to endure. It also allows him to be content. He, he's not just kind of barely scraping by. He says, I'm content. I, I can face any of these situations and be content. Why? Because again, he knows that God is with him in this struggle. And in that, Paul is content. That's why he can rejoice in the Lord. He knows that God had prepared beforehand 
all that he was to accomplish, every trial he was to face, every time he was to stand up and preach, God had prepared that beforehand for him to walk in and God would supply the strength that he needed to face that. Even though he is weak, Paul says, I am weak. In that, God is strong through him. There's no pressure to be strong in the Christian life. Our strength is in Christ. And in that, Paul says, I am content. In Christ, he is content. And this truth isn't just found here in Scripture. It's all over the place. Paul had basically revealed the same thing in different words earlier in Philippians when he said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, again, if if you just take that sense and you believe that, if that is your life motto, no one can touch you. If you live, you're living for Christ. If you die, it's gain. That that is the secret and even shorter form. Once you're living in this reality, everything else really fades in importance. Your eyes are fixed on Christ and, and knowing him and making him known, and that strengthens you. That's what Paul knows. And that's what he communicates here. He says, look, I'm thankful, but but I don't need the gift. My strength is in Christ. And he's, again, that may sound kind of rude in our context, but that's not rude in their context. He's trying to teach them how to look at these things. The author of Hebrews ties these same two things together in chapter 13, verse 5 through 6. Same two issues come together perfectly. Look at what he says. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Now, what is the reason for it? It's the same thing Paul says. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's the same thing. How are you to be content with what you have? How are you to keep your life free from money? Knowing that God's presence is with you. God is with you. In other words, knowing that you are walking in exactly what he has prepared for you to walk in. That's the same connection. You have God and no one can change that. No human can touch that. That's where contentment is found. And every time we go searching for it somewhere else, it ends up poorly. See, God is dwelling in you. God is in control and he's he's working everything together for his glory and our good. And if you actually believe that in any situation, like Paul You can be content, whether it's a situation of abundance or need. Philippians 4.13 is not about winning a ball game or, or losing weight. It's about accomplishing the tasks that God has laid out for us. It's about glorifying him in all that we do and relying on him fully the entire way. It's about being content in any situation because you know that the God of the universe, the the creator of all things, loves you and has promised to never leave you or forsake you. And sometimes I think this is where we go wrong. We search for contentment in the wrong places and then we wonder why we can't find it. We search for contentment outside of Christ and then wonder why it's so elusive. We, We... We just want to profess Christ so that we don't go to hell. And then we pursue contentment like every other worldly person. We pursue contentment and we wonder, well, why doesn't this work? Why am I not content? But you see, Paul's secret is is not that Christ strengthens us to pursue our dreams and our goals. Paul's secret is that Christ strengthens us to pursue his glory. 
And so, so if you're a Christian this morning and you're not pursuing Christ's glory, well, no wonder you're not content. You were created to walk with him. You won't be able to find contentment in anything else. You've been, you, you, God has made you a new creation. You can't go back walking in the old ways and expect it to work. It just doesn't. Our contentment is found in Christ and in him alone. No wonder when we search for contentment in other places, it doesn't work. We were created to live for his glory. And when we live in that, that is where we find contentment. That, that is Paul's reminder here. And it, this is just a side note. This isn't even his main point. This is, this is a thank you note. But he wants to remind and teach the Philippians because it's so important. It's vital to seek contentment from the true source. If you have Christ, this is the secret. You can be content in any and all circumstances because he is the source of your strength and life. That's, that's the secret. That's what our brothers and sisters all across the world know that sometimes we miss because we have so much abundance. That's what our brothers and sisters in prison right now in China know that we so often forget. But now Paul turns to kind of the main issue of this section, his thank you. So he, he begins to talk about the financial gift that the Philippians had sent to him in Rome. And at first a glance, again, it kind of just seems like a thank you. I mean, it kind of seems like he's just talking about uh, things that would apply to them, but not us. But within this next section, Paul reveals many things about money, missions funding, and God's work all together. So we're kind of going to break it down and look at it verse by verse and pull out some of the principles that Paul exposes for us here. Look at, look at verse uh, 10, chapter 4, verse 10. So he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived or now at last, you could kind of say it like that, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but, but you had no opportunity. So for whatever reason, the Philippians had wanted to support Paul for a while, but they hadn't been able to. Uh, we don't know what that is. Something prevented them. Maybe it was just bad weather. I mean, again, this is a six-month journey. So there could have been some different reasons why they weren't able to support Paul. But he knows they had wanted to, and now at last that he had received their gift. But notice something really quick in this verse. Even when the Philippians send Paul financial support, he's rejoicing in the Lord. He knows that although the gift is from the Philippians, ultimately it is from the Lord. So see, Paul even demonstrates for us here. Anytime he's rejoicing, he's rejoicing in the Lord. God provides for the needs of his saints through the sacrificial and generous giving of his saints. See, so Paul had prayed to the Lord to support him, and this gift had come at the right time. So after verse 10, Paul gives his sidebar. He kind of says what we just looked at, and then he takes it up again, the same line of thought in verse 14. So he had given, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. And he goes back to talking about the gift. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. So not that I needed the gift, but it's very kind of you to share my trouble, to share my affliction. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, multiple times, he's saying. The Philippian church was the only church that had supported Paul at this time. 
And it's, they didn't just give him one gift. They kept sending him money. They did it multiple times, time and time again. In fact, from the time that Paul first planted the church in Philippi to writing this letter was probably about 10 years from our best uh, guesses. And they had partnered with him this whole time, continuously sending him financial support. And this kind of brings up the question, well, what's up with all the other churches? Why aren't they supporting Paul? And the answer is, is kind of practical and kind of simple. Paul never asked the churches for financial support. You see, Paul makes plain in other texts that he could have, rightly, by every account, he could have asked for money. But he says, I didn't want to. And the reason is simple. Paul essentially says this. And what we know of the time makes sense of this is that during this time, one of the professions of the time was basically these speakers would travel around from town to town. They would give speeches, and it was a form of entertainment. I mean, think, you had no TV, no newspapers. There's, there's nothing like that. There's nothing to do, really. Um, and so the, this lecture where it would come into town, people would gather, and they would give a lecture, and then they would ask for money, and people would give money. And when the money ran out, they would just move on to the next town. So Paul didn't accept money because he wanted to distinguish himself from this crowd. He didn't want people to become confused and think he was just giving a nice lecture for money, and then they would give him money. Okay, thank you. He wanted them to make sure, like, no, this is for real. I'm not doing this for money. So the word tells us that Paul made tents to support himself. So he, would, he didn't ask for support. So what we know then is that the Philippian church must have been eager to support him financially, even though he never asked. And, and they gave him not once, but many times. They gave him money so that he could spend more time ministering and less time making tents. And think about, think about it for a second. Again, in a first century context, what it took for the Philippians to send Paul money. See, supporting a missionary like Paul back then was not like today. You couldn't just wire money through the internet. You couldn't send supplies with a couple of clicks. You couldn't mail a check. You literally had to get a group of people from your church and send them to go meet Paul wherever he was. So you had to know where he was, number one, or you just had to go looking for him. And then you had to just physically carry a bag of money throughout the, the, wherever you were going. You're putting your life at risk here. These are dangerous journeys. Three to six months at a time. I mean, I mean imagine how it would be to support a missionary. So imagine Doug Landro in Ukraine if we said, okay, we have our financial gift gathered. Who wants to go to Ukraine? And see you next year. Hope you survive. We don't know. Hope you don't get robbed. Hope you don't get in a shipwreck. Hope, I mean, there's so many things that could go wrong, yet they were willing to support Paul time and time again. They kept sending money, putting their own people's lives at risk. I mean, the Philippians tells us Epaphroditus almost died. Philippi and Thessalonica are sort of close, but not Philippi and Corinth. And they had sent money to him there as well. And Philippi and Rome are a thousand miles apart. Months of traveling, walking, riding, sailing, just so that they could support Paul and his mission work. They were committed to the Apostle Paul. They were committed, even more importantly, to the mission of Christ, to the spread and advancement of the gospel of Christ. And here's the key. They didn't just say it with their mouth. They backed it up with their money. They, they knew that if they gave Paul money, this would further the gospel in other words, they, they put their money where their profession was. They put their money where their mouth is. And they kept doing it. They kept giving to Paul. 
They supported him, not just with their words, not just with their prayers, but with their checkbooks as well. They, they even risked their lives to be able to give him money. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is how we must view our money as well. We must support our missionaries and the church with our money. Prayer is absolutely essential. Supporting it by saying, I support the church is absolutely essential. But at the end of the day, it takes money to keep the lights on. It takes money to send people out to do the missions. And that's what Paul's saying here. The Philippians didn't just say, Paul, we support you. We love you. We're praying for you. They said, let me write you a big check to help you on your time. Anyone can say they support missions. Anyone can say they love the spread of the gospel. But the biblical principle is back it up with your money. People need it to do missions. We've got to put our money where our mouths are. We've got to put our money where we say our hearts are. That's the evidence. God supplies the needs of his people, but not through magical money that comes down from the heavens. God supplies the needs of his people, of his missionaries, of his churches through the giving of his people. That's the biblical principle. God is calling us to supply and fund the spread of the gospel. To write the checks, to send the supplies, to to get in the trenches. We're not just to pray. We are to pray, but we're not just to pray, oh Lord, fund our missionaries and supply their needs. We're to write the checks as well. We're, We're to join in the process. We're to share in the trouble. We're to share in the affliction, to use the words of Paul, of our missionaries by sending support. Paul said, by sending support, you have shared in my affliction. I mean, just praying for God to support our missionaries would be like praying to God to help you lose 50 pounds and then driving you to McDonald's and eating two Big Macs and a large fries. It just doesn't compute. Yes, pray, but also act. Pray and also obey the word. If you want to lose weight, pray and act. If you want our missionaries to be supported, if you want the church to be supported, pray and give. If you want the support, the, to support the spread of the gospel in the same way, pray, share the gospel, and give so others can do it as well. We are to back our prayers up with action. It's like if you came to me and said, man, I'm just so poor, I don't have a t-shirt. And I was carrying a bag of t-shirts and I said, oh, that, that must be rough. I will pray that God will give you a t-shirt. Have a good day. I mean, that's what we're doing when we say we want, we love missions. We want God to fund missions. We love our church. We want God to fund our church, but I, I'm not going to give you my money. That's what we're doing. That's one of the reasons we started the faith promise. We want to give you the opportunity to give to missions directly. They're on the back table. So I would ask you bluntly, have you made your faith promise yet? Are you willing to put your money where your mouth is? I I think everyone here would say, I support missions. And that is good. We should say that. But we also have to back it up with our money. Otherwise, it rings quite hollow. And, And I say that convicting myself as well. We must be the same way the Philippians were with Paul, committed. They wouldn't let anyone stop them giving to Paul. They would travel months and months risking their own lives just to give to him. So I would ask you, will you join us as well? Supporting church, supporting our missions with money, with time. 
because of the Philippians, because of their repeated efforts, their eager efforts, Paul was well supplied and effective in his mission. But then Paul makes a strange turn. He he says something that kind of raises our theological eyebrows. Paul says something here that sounds more like Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn than it does Paul, at least to our ears. Look what he says in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So Paul's essentially saying, I'm excited about you giving me your money. Not because I need the money or seek more money, but because I'm seeking the profit that accrues to your account. In other words, Paul says by giving to him, they will gain a profit. At first glance, it's kind of like, Paul, have you been watching a little too much TBN? What are you talking about? They're going to gain fruit. They're going to gain a profit. That sounds a little bit like sow a seed and God's going to reap in your life. I mean, it's harder to see in English, but all the language Paul's using here is financial language. These are financial banking terms in Greek. Aren't we just supposed to give just simply because we're being obedient? What kind of profit do we gain? You see, in here, we see the, the, the perversity of the prosperity gospel. See, the problem with the prosperity gospel is not that they say, well, they do say wrong things, but the problem is it's all half-truths. So this language of sow a seed, that's from the Bible. They're using Bible verses. The problem is they just never say all of what Scripture says about money. That's why it's so dangerous. Charles Spurgeon once said, the, the, the hardest thing to discern is not between right and wrong. It's between right and almost right. And that's the dangerous decision, and that's exactly it. And I'm afraid sometimes because of the influence of the prosperity gospel, we sometimes shy away from the scriptures that do teach that there is blessings to be had in our giving. I want to show you some of them. In in the sense, the Bible does teach that we accrue treasure in heaven when we give. The Bible teaches this plainly, and we can't be scared or let the big people on TV steal this truth from us. It's in scripture. Don't let them twist the scriptures, steal the actual scriptures from us. So I want to show you some of these passages. Paul's not crazy. Look what it says. Proverbs 19, 17 says this. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. 2 Corinthians, if you want to get a good grasp on this whole issue, just read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But here's a verse, 2 Corinthians 8. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. In other words, he's talking about their giving. This benefits you, who a year started, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. In other words, he says, he's telling them to get their gift ready so when he comes, he can collect it. He's saying, this benefits you. There is a benefit to you. That's just plain in scripture. Look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and here's the scripture they twist, but it's a true scripture. The point is this, he says. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then in 2 Corinthians 9.10, he continues. He, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Our generosity does produce blessing in our lives. It's a biblical principle. When you give, it also benefits you. The problem with the prosperity teaching is is not that they teach that God will bless your giving. The problem is that they teach that how God will bless your giving is with more money, 
more health, more wealth, more happiness. And that's the perversion. They put a worldly lens on the entire thing. It's, it's focused on earthly gain. The problem with the prosperity gospel is that they only teach a small part of what the Bible says about money. They cherry pick and twist the scriptures. We are to store up treasure. That's not a wrong impulse. Jesus explicitly commands us to store up treasure. He says this in Matthew 6, 19. Do not accumulate for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But here's the command. Accumulate for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how do we store up treasure in heaven? Well, one way is by giving and supporting missions and ministry. Paul says, not that I seek the gift. Here's another way to translate that second phrase. I seek the profit that accrues to your account. It's it's financial accounting language. In other words, when you support a missionary or a ministry, you get to take part in the credit that they get for doing their work. That's what Paul's talking about here. You, you, t- you, you are taking part in their ministry through supporting them financially. And just so you don't think I'm crazy. Well, for other reasons, maybe. Listen to what John Calvin says on this verse. He has a really big beard, so you know he's right. He says this, quote, The harvest, however, should be explained as referring to the spiritual compensation of eternal life as well as to earthly blessings, which God confers upon the generous. For God rewards, not only in heaven, but also in this world, the generosity of believers. Hence, it is as though he had said, the more generous you are to your neighbors, you will find the blessing of God so much the more abundantly poured out on you. God has commanded us to give, and he has promised to bless our giving. So brothers and sisters, give. Give generously. Give sacrificially. Give cheerfully. But not only has God commanded us to give, he, there's a promise attached to it. And not only is there a promise attached to it, it also is pleasing to him. It's pleasing to him. Look at verse 18. I have received full payment, Paul says, and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, this is Old Testament kind of Levitical language. When a sacrifice was offered rightly and according to the law, the Bible describes it as pleasing to God, that he smelled the aroma and it was pleasing to him. Giving done according to scriptures pleases him. It pleases him. And then Paul attaches another promise to it. Look at verse 19 and 20. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God will supply your needs. This is not a promise of an endless supply of material resources and luxuries and Bentleys and jets and all that kind of stuff. It's not a promise to supply every little want you may have. I mean, again, if, if you want to know if, you're, if your thinking is kind of prosperity gospel oriented, just, just ask yourself, would it apply to the Apostle Paul's life? Think about it. God will supply their needs. This was true for the Apostle Paul as well. But he lived an 
pretty terrible life, to be honest, but he was content. He had lack. He slept outside. He was shipwrecked. He knew what it was like to go hungry, but he had learned this secret. And because of that, although he was in need, he was never in need. One commentator summarizes verse 19 by saying this, as they partner with Paul in financial giving, they will find their experience of Jesus Christ deepen as they find greater joy in Christ than in the riches of the world. Hebrews 11 says that that Moses found the, the wealth of Christ, the wealth of heaven, greater than the wealth of the world. See, the problem isn't that we're pursuing wealth. The problem is we're pursuing the wrong kind of wealth. And the more that we give, the more that our hearts become generous, the more that our joy in Christ deepens. God will supply them out of his riches. This is simply another one of Christ's principles rewarded. Matthew 6, on the wall back there. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Give, and God will supply your need from his endless riches in Christ Jesus. And all of this, Paul says, is for his glory. But he's not finished. He ends the letter with another greeting. Look at verse 21 and 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you in this line, especially those of Caesar's household. What a line. Paul's in prison in Rome. And again, you have to think of the context of Philippi. Now, we talked about this like three months ago, so I don't expect you to remember. But Philippi, they called it Little Rome. They were obsessed with Rome and Roman culture. It was a colony filled with many veterans and Roman citizens. They spoke Latin. Paul says, all the saints greet you here in Rome, especially those of Caesar's household. They were eager to give the greeting. There were people in Caesar's household who were believers. Now, the term Caesar's household can apply to many people. It could basically apply to anyone who's under the employ directly of Caesar. So some scholars have said that could have been upwards of 100,000 people because there were so many people that worked in the administration. It could apply to slaves and uh, all towards politicians and things like that. But the point is this, because of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, the gospel had penetrated the household of Caesar, the very household of Caesar himself. Prison could not contain the gospel. I've thought about it many times, but could you imagine being the Roman guard who was stationed next to the apostle Paul all day? He must have just got an earful. He probably just converted just to just, okay, fine. I'll become a Christian. Even if it costs me my life, just stop. Leave me alone. Even in the midst of Paul's imprisonment, the gospel is not chained. Even Caesar is no match for the power of the gospel. Paul was in chains, but the gospel was not. He wants the Philippians to know, even though I'm in chains, the gospel is still advancing here into the deepest and darkest recesses of Caesar's household. I read this text and I I think of our brothers and sisters who are sitting in prison right now across the globe. And I remember reading that that letter from that pastor in China, and that was his prayer. He He said, yeah, pray for my freedom. That's great. I'd like to be free. But pray that even in our imprisonment, we would get chances to share the gospel with the guards, the people who want to kill us. That's the attitude of the Apostle Paul here. 
And finally, in verse 23, the last line of Philippians, he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul had started Philippians with the grace of God and he ends it with the grace of God. And specifically here, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because in Christ, the grace of God is on full display. He became flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died as a sacrifice for sinners. He rose from the dead and ascended into glory, sitting at the right hand of the Father. As Paul had said earlier, one day, every tongue will confess, not that Caesar is Lord, like they confessed then, but that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everything Paul has said in Philippians has been encased in the grace of God, which is from the Father, displayed in the Son, and applied by the Spirit. Everything we've heard over the last 15 or so weeks is all grace. It's all grace. That's why he starts with grace and ends with grace. Salvation is all of grace. Our faith to believe in Christ is all of grace. The power to obey all that God has commanded is all his grace. It's grace that enables us to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's by grace that we are citizens of the kingdom of, of heaven. It's, it's grace that enables us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. It's, it's grace that enables us to know that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's, it's grace that enables us to stop worrying and start praying. And it's grace that enables us to rejoice in the Lord always. It's grace that allows us to be unified, one body striving side by side for the advance of the gospel. And it's grace that enables us to know Christ and make him known in the entire world until the ages of ages when finally, one day, every tongue on heaven and earth and under the earth will confess. Every knee will bow. Jesus Christ, the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's all grace. It's all grace. Everything that we have, everything that we are, is all by the grace of God. We have earned none of it. That is why Paul calls us to be generous. Because God is so generous with us. It's all grace. So I would ask you this morning, do you know this grace? Do you know this Jesus who supplies this grace? And if not, I would... I plead with you to turn from your sin and embrace him. Christ has promised that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. So come to him this morning. Come to him in faith. Come to him humbly. Don't wait for that day when every tongue will confess. Confess this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord. Turn from your sins. Turn from your self-sufficiency and come to Christ. In him you will find all that you need. And if you do know him, if you do know his grace, then praise him together with me. Find your contentment in him. Serve him with your life. Aim your life at the advancement of his gospel. Pour yourself out for his cause. Give of yourself, give of your finances, knowing that all the while he will supply every need and that you are gaining treasure in heaven. He has given us his very son. And he will withhold no blessing from us, Romans says. 
So let us turn now and give to the support of this work. An old hymn puts it this way. It says, his love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's the motivation behind all of this. It's all grace. And close with the words of 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 through 17. Now may, the, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've taken us on quite a journey in Philippians. I pray that these truths would be so deeply ingrained in our hearts that they just overflow into our lives and overflow in every thought and action. Father, I pray that we as a church would rise up and and put our money where our mouth is. That our missionaries would, would feel like the Apostle Paul, supported and loved, not just by word, but by deed as well. Father, you have given us everything by your grace. We thank you and praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.